Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Lawrence Shoup. Lawrence is the author of uh, a new book about the Council on Foreign Relations. He was the co-author in 1977 of Imperial Brain Trust about the Council on Foreign Relations and his brand new wonderful book, I highly recommend it, Wall Street's Think Tank, The Council on Foreign Relations and the Empire of Neoliberal Geopolitics, 1976 to 2014, so filling in all of those years since 1976. Lawrence Shoup, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. Nice to be here. Uh, Great to have you here. You say the Council on Foreign Relations is the world's most powerful private organization. I bet you couldn't get most people to come up with that answer in a a public poll. Uh, Is that true? How do you explain that and and what is the council on foreign relations for those who don't hear about it every day well it's a behind the scenes organization that's why people don't hear about it it's part of the deep state that operates behind the scenes not in total secrecy although there is some secrecy involved they uh have uh, you know annual reports and they have a magazine called foreign affairs magazine and they have a very big website so information is available on this organization but it does operate behind the scenes kind of Quietly, it uh, just to give you a, a little bit of a flavor of it. The uh, I looked at the administration since the Carter administration since 1976 and early 1977 covered all those administrations in the top foreign policy in many cases domestic policy to Treasury Secretary and so on. I looked at all the policymakers and found that 80 percent of them were members of this organization. Uh, now it's a, that gets into the uniqueness of the Council on Foreign Relations. It's a private organization made up of people that are uh, mostly, uh, well, there's really two groups that are key to it, and that's the uh, intellectual side of it and then the business side of it. Uh, so it's a private organization of almost 5,000 members, and so it's a very big membership organization, but it's also a think tank. Most organizations are either one or the other. You know, you have the Heritage Foundation and the uh, Cato Institute, and Hoover Institute, and so on, American Enterprise Institute, those are think tanks. Then you have private organizations like the NAACP, which is a membership organization. The uniqueness of the council, it brings those two together. And it's the, if you look over the membership list, and you can find it on the uh, uh, Council of Foreign Relations uh, website, CFR.org, uh, you can look at their annual report and look at their membership. It's pre- really very striking how a very... Uh, the number of people that are powerful in one sh- section of U.S. society or another, and the numbers that are billionaires, extremely rich. It's a plutocratic organization. Uh, the capitalist class, what I call the capitalist class, and I define that in the book, uh, are the people that really run the organization. They're the ones that run the board of directors. The uh, chairman of the council, for example, in the last, uh, in this period that I'm talking about, from 1976 to the present, uh, there's been David Rockefeller for many years. Then Peter Peterson, both of those are uh, billionaires. And then Robert Rubin and Carla Hills have been more recently the uh, co-chairs of the Council on Foreign Relations. So the leadership, the top leadership, uh, you know, that's why I call it Wall Street's think tank, because the top leadership is uh, connected to uh, especially finance capital, but also in general uh, people that are extremely rich billionaires. At my website, uh, I have a uh, 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 com. I have a list of over a hundred 
uh, Council of Foreign Relations members that are extremely wealthy. Uh, so it's a plutocratic organization. Of the Rockefellers have been very prominent, but also uh, other American families that are important, like uh, you know, financially important, like the Vanderbilt, the Duponts, the Mellons. Uh, they've all been active in the Council of Foreign Relations over the years. So here we have an organization that works behind the scenes, uh, but is extremely powerful when it actually comes to making policy, both putting people in office and also with their think tank, planning future policies for the United States and for increasingly for the world. Uh, one of my chapters goes into all the council's connections in the in the worldwide policy planning fields. So there were, whether it's the Bilderberger Group or the Trilateral Commission, the Group of 30, or the people that meet at Davos, Council on Foreign Relations people are very prominent in those uh, various forums around the world. The council is a, uh, a private U.S. organization, so its membership of almost 5,000 are U.S. citizens. But you have people coming from other countries. Rupert Murdoch, for example, came from Australia, became a U.S. citizen, and, of course, then got into the Council on Foreign Relations. And you get into the Council on Foreign Relations by applying. Oftentimes, they will recruit certain people, but you have to apply, and the Board of Directors has to approve. Another aspect of the Council is their corporate uh, membership. They have corporations as members, and, of course, it's the ones you would expect, the biggest, most multinational corporations. Whether it's J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs, and Citibank and Bank of America, or Exxon Mobil and Chevron and other big oil companies, Hess and others, are corporate members of the Council on Foreign Relations. That's another unique aspect of the Council. So toward the beginning, Lawrence, you said that 80% of policymakers are, are members of the Council on Foreign Relations, if I heard that right. Could you just explain uh, who, who counts as a policymaker? Yeah. This was the top policymakers since the Carter administration. I looked at the president, the vice president, the secretary of treasury, the secretary of state, secretary of defense, the national security advisor. Uh, those are the main ones that I looked at, and it amounts to almost 100 people, and uh, over almost 80 of them were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. So this is an extraordinarily high uh, number of people from one organization that were top policymakers. I didn't look at all the policymakers. Uh, in the Obama administration, for example, there's a number of others, the Energy Secretary, the Department of Health, Education, Welfare Secretary, the Commerce Secretary. They're all members of the Council on Foreign Relations as well. Uh, so I didn't look at every cabinet member or every, uh, every policymaker, just the top ones. And to give a sample there from, from the period from Carter to Obama, including Obama, taking it up the story up to the end of 2014. I also looked at a lot of uh, people that were advisors on uh, various committees. The State Department has an advisory committee. The Defense Department has an advisory committee. The CIA has an advisory committee. Looking at those advisory committees, I found that over 70% of those members of those advisory committees were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. So behind the scenes, this organization is constantly working to... What do they do, of course, is bring together different elements of the capitalist class and the professional class, that is, intellectuals at universities and at other think tanks. They bring them together to uh, plan policy and then develop consensus about what the policy should be, and then, with, through their members in the government, insert those policies into the government. And this has a long history. The Council on Foreign Relations was founded in 1921, 
the joining of two groups, an earlier group called the Council on Foreign Relations and the group that came out of the inquiry, which was the post-war planning bodies, which Woodrow Wilson set up in during the First World War to plan for the post-war world, those were more intellectual. So it's a com- combined a business organization called the Council on Foreign Relations, which was actually founded in 1918, to do uh, planning and connection with other uh, in, uh, other uh, capitalists around the world to, in order to do improve U.S. business activities, including trade. And those two organizations joined in 1921. And ever since then, the Council on Foreign Relations has been, I think, increasingly powerful. I think a very important change took place towards more power in uh, the, the Second World War period when the Council was very active in planning the post-war world for the Second World War. Uh, to show the uh, ambition of the Council, on uh, September 12, 1939, only 12 days after Hitler invaded Poland and plunging the world into the Second World War, only 12 days after that, and several years before the United States joined the war, the, the Council on Foreign Relations leaders met with State Department officials saying, we need to start planning for the post-war world. Imagine, the world just started the war only 12 days before, and the Council's already thinking about, well, let's plan for the post-war world. So they set up a series of planning groups of over 100 people that were doing planning for the post-war world, and once the United States got into the war, those groups were integrated into the State Department planning for the post-war world, and that's the uh, uh, how the how the uh, post-war world got going uh, in terms of having a UN and International Monetary Fund and World Bank. Uh, these were things that the Council on Foreign Relations was planning as ways to integrate the post-war world and make it a a more uh, uh, a world that was more open to U.S. power, U.S. influence, and U.S. capital, U.S. businesses. And and those pre-U.S. entry into the war plans for the post-war world, were those predicated on the idea that the U.S. would be entering the war? Yes, it was predicated. In fact, they came out in uh, 1941 with what was called the Grand Area Plan. Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations came up with this plan. And that was the minimum living space of the United States. Uh, and these memos, they, they made up memos. They sent out memos. They had over almost 700 memos over the period of 1939 to 1945. And they sent all these to the, all the, uh, the main uh, bureaus of the, of the U.S. government, including and also the president and vice president, got these memos. And one of them was the Grand Area of 1941. And it outlined the living space of the United States. It said that if Japan started to go into Southeast Asia, that would be uh, violate the uh, minimum living space that the United States needed to uh, have a, a prosperous economy. Southeast Asia was seen even at that early date. Of course, this was later on uh, stressed in the lead-up to the uh, U.S. involvement in the uh, what's usually called the Vietnam War, the U.S. War on Southeast Asia, on, on Vietnam. And the said that that was the minimum living space of Japan. Japan started to intervene there, the United States would have to go to war. And uh, Japan recognized that and decided to uh, have a preemptive attack at Pearl Harbor. Uh, so this, these plans, uh, they had the unconditional surrender came out of these plans. This was a uh, plan that the council put forward in 1942. Let's have an unconditional surrender uh, for the Axis powers. Uh, and so they 
this, these plans were very important, and this shows the, the Council's long history making grand strategic plans and developing consensus among those that matter, uh, that is, the Wall Street people, the big capitalists, and the intellectuals. And, of course, the intellectuals are the ones that you would expect, the Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Johns Hopkins, University of Chicago, Stanford. Those are the big universities that have very heavy numbers of the Council on Foreign Relations, people on their faculty, members on their faculty. They're a nationwide organization. They have branches all over the country, but the, these uh, universities are big centers of Council on Foreign Relations members. Just just one more quick question about World War II, because I'm interested. When when President Roosevelt got himself reelected, saying he would stay out of the war, uh, and then, of course, got into the war after Pearl Harbor, what was, what was his relationship with the Council on Foreign Relations, which was, uh, as I understand it, wanting the U.S. to get into the war and to dominate a chunk of the globe after the war? Uh, Roosevelt was not a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, the, m- much of his administration was, for example, uh, Henry Stimson, the uh, Secretary of, of Defense, they called the Secretary of War in those days. He he was a member, a longtime member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And one of his main advisors, Norman Davis, was the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. So they had, uh, and a lot of sub-level uh, people in the State Department and the Defense Department. Cordell Hall was also not a member, but Cordell Hall's big advisor also was Norman Davis the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. So the Council work. Uh, this is often the case. The Council is not, uh, the president is not a member of the Council, but of course there have been seven presidents that have been members of the Council on Foreign Relations, but uh, Roosevelt was not one of them. We're speaking with Lawrence Shoup, whose new book is Wall Street's Think Tank about the Council on Foreign Relations. When people, when people join, I, I mean, are all of these top officials and and their advisors, people who get those positions in government and then suddenly are recruited and join the Council on Foreign Relations? Or are they people who've been members for decades and their parents and grandparents were members and they end up in these high offices? Uh, it's a mix of those two things. It's mostly the latter, the people that are, have been members of the Council on Foreign Relations for a long time and make their connections there. Uh, are the ones that go into office. But there are some cases where they weren't members of the Council on Foreign Relations, and uh, while they were in office or when they leave office, they then become members of the Council on Foreign Relations. A couple good examples of the former, that is, people that were longtime members of the Council or got their start in the Council, are Henry Kissinger and Condoleezza Rice. Uh, Those individuals got their start in the Council on Foreign Relations as far as meeting people that really uh, put their careers ahead. Uh, in the case of Kissinger, he was an obscure Harvard professor when the council wanted to do a study on nuclear weapons and foreign policy, and they hired Kissinger as a staff person to, this was 1955, uh, you know, well before uh, Kissinger was prominent, uh, and he wrote a book on the auspices of the council, and it was the way the study groups work is they bring in people like Kissinger, intelligent, young academics, and then they have a whole group of people that are interested in this topic, uh, and they, maybe up to 40 people or even 45 people will be in in the study group, and they will, for a period of months, uh, even years sometimes, will meet and discuss various issues, and they'll have someone that's a rapporteur, they call them, and they take notes, and then they oftentimes write up a, uh, a book or an article 
or some other publication based on the thinking of the study group and their own ideas as well, but basically the thinking of the study group. Well, Kissinger wrote a book which became famous called Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy, which was a Council on Foreign Relations book. There at the Council, then he became a member of the Council, and there is where he met the Rockefellers, who were prominent in the Council. David Rockefeller became a member of the Council in 1941, uh, and was the director of the Council from 1949 on. And now is the honorary chairman. Uh, David Rockefeller is 100 years old this year, and he's still prominent uh, in the council uh, thinking. Uh, so anyway, Kissinger met the Rockefellers there and became an advisor to Nelson Rockefeller, also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And then that's how he became prominent enough to get in the circles that later on led to Nixon tapping him as Secretary of State First National Security Advisor, then later Secretary of State. In the case of Condoleezza Rice, Again, obscure uh, intellectual in, uh, at Stanford, and uh, she was, uh, they wanted to recruit at this time. The council was changing, uh, gradually changing from being an all-male organization before 1970 to becoming an organization that had some women in the organization, gradually increasing. And in the 80s, they saw Condoleezza Rice as someone who was interested in the Soviet Union, which was something that the council was working uh, from the very beginning to try to destroy the Soviet Union. Uh, so they saw uh, Rice as an expert uh, that would be and an African-American woman, so that it added the diversity of the council that they were trying to gradually implement. It was a very slow process, but uh, they gradually were bringing in people of color and women into the council. So Rice uh, became a, uh, a council member, and then became active on some of the council uh, uh, various groups, study groups, and chaired some of the council meetings and began to meet uh, various people that then became important in her career, uh, the Bush family and uh, uh, Schultz, George Schultz, uh, who uh, was also at Stanford and was a director of some of the important companies like Chevron. And she got onto the Chevron board, and then the, her career was, was uh, launched there. Therefore, uh, so this, these are a couple examples of people that, through their their connections to the council, became prominent, and then also, of course, financially, could become wealthy because they meet people that are big capitalists and they can get on boards or they can become advisors. In the case of Kissinger, founded Kissinger Associates, which advises multinational corporations on their politics. So Kissinger now didn't start out wealthy, but now he's extremely wealthy. Condoleezza Rice didn't start out wealthy either, but now because of her corporate boards, uh, she can become uh, a capitalist herself. Uh, so these are the personal advantages that you can gain by me- being a member of the Council on Foreign Relations if, if, you're, if you have the uh, wherewithal and the expertise uh, that the Council is looking for. And, of course, you're willing to serve uh, the capitalist class in their interests. And what about Madeleine Albright and Bill Clinton, whose uh, prominence, uh, of course, led to the current prominence of Hillary Clinton? Yeah, Madeleine Albright, of course, is an Im- immigrant, uh, was uh, born and raised, I think, in Czechoslovakia, I understand. And she came into the United States as a very ambitious person, but she must come from some kind of uh, upper-class background because she was right away starting to interact with higher circles in the United States and married a a very wealthy uh, newspaper, uh, married into the Patterson family, and became uh, 
her expertise. Uh, she she also worked very hard to uh, get a PhD, in, uh, and her expertise in foreign policy led her to be with the with the plutocratic kind of connection with her uh, her spouse, got her into the Council on Foreign Relations, and then because she was active in Democratic Party circles, uh, she became a friend of Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton, of course, being very ambitious and knowing that the council was pretty important asked Albright to uh, get him into the Council on Foreign Relations, and this was in the 1980s. So he got into the Council on Foreign Relations, and of course this was part of the, the networks that allowed him to gain the political support, including financial support, the media support that you need, and the advisors that you need to try to become president. I think those are the three key things, financial, uh, media, and advisors, that any presidential candidate needs to have. And Clinton, of course, got a lot of that from the Council on Foreign Relations. And once he got in office, almost his whole administration, uh, the top people in foreign policy, and many of them in domestic policy, were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. And, of course, Albright uh, has went on to uh, become the Secretary of State and uh, also the U.N. Uh, head of the U, uh, U, U.S. Uh, ambassador to the United Nations. And that re- reminds me of an interesting story about her, uh, that she, she during the 1990s, uh, there was also a, the current, which later became more dominant, let's get rid of Saddam Hussein, let's take over Iraq. And at a meeting uh, in the Clinton White House, uh, Madeleine Albright asked the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Hugh Sheldon, uh, whether or not uh, he could uh, arrange for a plane to fly low and slow over Iraq so it would be shot down, and you'd have a reason to go to war with Saddam Hussein. And Hugh Sheldon, in his memoirs, said he was very, uh, this is the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he said he was very angry at that question. And he said to Albright, yes, Madam Secretary, we can we can arrange to have, as soon as we get your ass trained, he used the word ass in his, in his memoirs, so as soon as you get your ass trained to fly the plane, we'll be able, you'll be able to drive it, just fly it just as low and slow as you want and get shot down and cause a war. <laughs> so, uh, you, you know, uh, George W. Bush made that exact same proposal to Tony Blair in the White House on January 31st, 2003, and the two of them walked out to a press conference and said they were trying to avoid war, if at all possible. Uh, so th- these ideas are clearly bipartisan, right? Madeleine Albright has the same inclinations as George W. Bush. Maybe he got it from her, I don't know. But but what is the council's relation to partisan politics? Because, you know, groups and individuals on the left always say, pick one of the two parties, the one that looks slightly better, and put everything into that party. The Council on Foreign Relations pushing clearly very unpopular plutocratic ideas uh, doesn't pick the party that seems more plutocratic and push it further to the right, it invests heavily in both parties. Why Why is that, and has that always been the case? Uh, that's that's pretty much always been the pay, case. They've always had uh, the first president, for example, of the Council on Foreign Relations, this before they had chairman. At the beginning, they had just had uh, president, was John W. Davis, who was a, a Democrat and ran for president in 1924. He was still president. He stayed president of the Council on Foreign Relations when he ran for president. Uh, so they've been ahead, and of course they have a very uh, large number of Republicans as well. Eisenhower, of course, was was uh, active in the council before he became president. Uh, so they, they have both parties, Rockefeller, of course, David Rockefeller and the other Rockefellers, prominent Republicans. 
So they, they have people from both parties, and the, the moderates, the middle of the road, the establishment from both parties are the ones dominant in the, in the council or, you know, in the council or, or active or, or very closely connected to the council. Now, in the case of our current presidential campaign, the people most closely connected to the council are Hillary Clinton, whose husband's a member and whose daughter's a member, but she's never become a member. She's gone to speak before the council when she became a uh, no, it was when the council was setting up its new office in Washington, D.C., she helped open the council. She went there for the opening and said, it's very nice that the council now has a headquarters so close to the uh, White House, because now we just have to go around the corner uh, to find out what we should be thinking. And that's the quote from, from Hillary Clinton. <laughs> to, get our, to, to get our orders. Close so we can, we can know what we should be thinking. It, it, uh, so... Uh, she's close to the council, and then on the Republican side, it's Jeb Bush, of course, that's close to the council. He has a, a, whole, a large number of advisors that are Council of Foreign Relations people, including uh, uh, this uh, guy Wolfowitz, Paul Wolfowitz, who was uh, so instrumental in uh, getting the United States into the Iraq War. But there were lots of other guys. I have a chapter in the book, of course, on the Iraq War. Uh, the council was behind this Iraq War, uh, council people, and they had lots of publications that Pushed, pushed getting into the war. And, and, and so based on past experience, uh, the council favoring uh, another Clinton or another Bush, what are, what's their track record? I mean, how often does the Council on Foreign Relations get what it wants? Uh, did, uh, did it want the Iran deal destroyed? Does it want Syria overthrown? I mean, can we predict what's going to happen based on the, the council's point of view? To some extent, I, I, you don't want to overstate it and make it sound like this is an all-powerful organization and there's no free will by any other forces in the world. That's not true. But, it's, but it is true that the, you can get an advance notice about what the plutocrats of the United States are thinking and what they're proposing and what they want to implement by looking at the Council on Foreign Relations. It's a big job. Uh, you know, I spent years writing this book and I spent many more years collecting data on it, because here's an organization that has thousands of meetings every year, that publishes a number of books, and, you know, since since about 1990, I think they've had uh, tens of thousands of publications of different kinds. You know, there's blogs, there's articles, there's foreign affairs magazine articles, as well as articles other places. They testify before Congress. Uh, they have their members all over the place in the media. No, most of the time not identified as Council on Foreign Relations. People, last night I was watching the uh, news hour with Judy Woodworth, who who is uh, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and she had Vin Weber there, who was identified as a former congressman from Minnesota. Well, he's the director of the Council on Foreign Relations and advisor to, George, uh, to uh, Jeb Bush. They didn't identify him as an advisor to Jeb Bush. They didn't identify him as a director of the council, not just a member, but a director of the Council on Foreign Relations. They have 35 directors. Uh, they didn't identify him that way, and he gave his views without anyone knowing that this these he's representing the views of the Council on Foreign Relations in many respects. So you don't know oftentimes, unless you study the organization and look at its uh, makeup, uh, whether some individual appears to uh, be advocating something and maybe have some other connection, like maybe he's a journalist for some some um, uh, magazine or newspaper, and that's how they identify him. But he's representing these other views. So it's, it's a big job to try to cover 
you know the Council on Foreign Relations. But but uh, you have I'm done it. Uh, you have you have done this job for us. I wish we could go on, but the clock's running out. Uh, if people want to learn more, they can pick up this book, and I highly recommend it. Wall Street's think tank, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Empire of Neoliberal Geopolitics, 1976 to 2014, by Lawrence Shoup. Lawrence Shoup, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.